brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with the military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. Be sure to enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support the podcast. And in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become part of their unarmed forces today. And by Beneath, starting with the first thing that you put on in the morning, Beneath inspires you to be your most authentic self. Get ready to experience increased comfort that radically outperforms anything that you've tried before while leaving minimal impact on Mother Earth. Use the code UNITY to get 15% off at checkout at Beneath.com. That's B-N-3-T-H.com. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I am here with my second Navy SEAL, complete badass, New York Times bestseller, has five incredibly successful, very useful, very much every human being should have a copy of these books. And he is somebody that also runs a great company called Nomad for Life. And he is the true frog man. And I am so grateful to have Clint Emerson on the show. So welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Kelsey. It's great to be here. Glad we're connecting and hopefully, uh, you know, I serve your audience well with an entertaining and informative interview. Oh, just the kind of audience, you know, they're going to, they're going to appreciate it. They're going to love it. They're, these guys, like they really seem to these guys and gals that listen to our show, the longer we've had it, the more and more that we have on, we're starting to realize very, very quickly. And I'm glad that I'm starting to get these people to realize, but we have a subset of really badass veterans out there that have incredible stories to tell. And they're doing incredible things, either philanthropic three philanthropically, business-wise, um, just in general, they're making difference in the world after service. And so these are the ones that are clicking. And so these are the people my people want to hear. So I'm sure you're going to be just fine, my dear. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's go for it. <laughs> All right, darling. So let's, let's, I like to hit it from the bottom. So yeah, I said it. Um, I like to hit it there. And I want to know why, what, and what part in your life where you're like, I want to get beasted by grown men on a regular basis while they scream in my face to the point of just hypothermic exhaustion. Why, why did you want to be a Navy SEAL? <laughs> why? Um, well, that's the part you don't think about that much. You think about like the cool ninja style operations that you could <laughs> potentially do. Uh, you know, I know for personally, I didn't sit there and think about, oh, I'm going to go to Bud's and get yelled at and I, that's going to be fun and I'm going to be frozen. You know, you hear those stories, but for me personally, I focused on the long game, which was what do I get to do when I get done with all this crap um, and hopefully fulfill that passion dream of when I was, you know, a young kid. And, uh, and that's all you focus on because if you really, if you focus on all that cold, wet, sandy part, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're setting yourself up for, fail, for failure or you'll quit or you'll get an injury. Um, so I kind of just always thought about the long game for the most part. And then when you're in the training, you just go from evolution to evolution and not think about right. it's, it's a balance, right? You don't think too far ahead when it comes to buds. If you're mm-hmm. going to think about something in the future, you think about, I get a trident, I'm a seal and I get to do, go do great things. Uh, but when you're in buds, you know, dealing with the evolutions and you just go from evolution to evolution in order to get through that part. So it's kind of like a balance on how far into the future you let yourself go in order to give yourself motivation to get through it. Fair enough. But what points did you go as a teenager? I want to do this because 
I mean, I'm Canadian. And, and if my listeners haven't caught on to that yet, based off apparently my accent, then you guys are out to lunch and I need to start speaking French more than, but if you haven't caught that, I am Canadian. And so when it comes to working and having conversations with these special ops guys, any of you, whether you're still serving, have served or whatever the deal is, uh, th- there's always a bit of a, a different uh, upbringing. And what it culminates, uh, kind of culminates to is this idea of not only service in a greater good, but in service of the sense that you not just want to make people proud, but there is something more to it. And so when I ask, why do you want to do this? Was there, are you, do you come from a military background? Is that your deal? Like, how did you have an influence in your life? Yeah. Um, my dad was not a military guy, but the rest of the family was. He tried okay. he, he tried to go and enlist for Vietnam. He was one of the very rare that like wanted to go, mm-hmm. but his knees were all blown out from playing football. They were like, you can't go because your knees are screwed up. So he was like, damn it. Um, mm. But he had his older brother went to Vietnam. My grandfather is a World War II guy. My other grandfather oh, was wow. a World War II guy. So you know, pretty much a, a military family. And I was influenced by that for sure. But the, probably the bigger influence was, you know, I was in an airport in Germany as a kid. And I've told this story several times, but the, the, uh, I, there was a guy standing there who had tattoos and I was like, what are those tattoos? Yeah, right. And he, uh, he's like, it's a trident. I'm like, what's a trident? And, you know, I basically annoyed him into telling me about Good. him being a seal. And so, the funny part of the story is years later, I started to investigate like who this guy was based on the stories he told me. And once I was in the SEAL teams, turns out he was probably a fraud, just giving me a line of shit. And so my, okay. my dream and passion <laughs> was driven by a fraud I met in an airport in Germany when I was 10 years old. So it was kind of funny. Well, I, I, I love the way you look at that because you see it. You see it for what it is. You're not like, well, this guy's, you know, he lied to me and that's, you know, thank you for your service. That whole kind of like, we need to be respectful. It's like, no, you're laughing at that. And I, I respect that so much because I can only imagine coming back in that era, Vietnam and all of that. I don't know that I would want to be talking about if I served in Vietnam, just based on the political climate afterwards for the returning soldiers. I mean, that was a, it was a very different time. So I'm surprised he sat down and told you anything, whether it's fraudulent or not paid attention to you. So that's kind of neat. Um, That's an interesting way. Well, I, I, um, I'm grateful for your family service. Thank you very much for that. And I want to touch on that a little bit because you being a frogman, um, I don't know if you've been ever had this conversation before. I had it uh, recently last week with Stacy Bear. I don't know if you know who that is. Um, he is another veteran and he's very much in the psychology world now and in helping within the treatment side of it. And we had this conversation about, um, thank you for your service. And I wanna know your feelings on that um, and, how, and how that resonates with you. And if, it, and if it brings up anything for you because something that I learned really quickly with him is people's perspective and, and what they actually think that word means or what that sentence means and, and what that kind of weight it holds with that. So I want to know your thoughts on, on, on things like, thank you for your service when someone says that to you. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, I, I guess I probably feel, uh, how do I feel? It's kind of, don't talk to me about my feelings, Kelsey. Yeah, uh... Feelings are overrated. <laughs> now it's more like, I don't look as a big deal, right? It's something that Mm -hmm. I wanted to do. It felt good to go and be part of something bigger than me. 
bigger than you know most of the things going on on this planet and that right and when you're doing something for the greater good of whether it's your 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 family your country or for the globe mm-hmm. um I really, you know, don't expect a thank you out of it. I kind of, I'm always telling people, you know, yeah, you know, yeah, no problem. I'd rather just move on past that. An part. awkward situation, it feels like. Yeah, and I appreciate it, but at the same time, I just, I don't even know what to say. Some other than, hey, yeah, no problem. You know, it's like, you know, in the back of my mind, though, I'll say that I think, you know, instead of saying thank you go out and sign the dotted line and serve yourself. That's, that's really the bigger piece where I'm like, you know, go out and do it. And, uh, everybody should serve in some form or fashion in their life. And, uh, you know, it's going to be different for some because of either their capabilities or, you know, uh, lifestyle or where they're at in life. Um, but just go serve and, uh, everyone do it. And, you know, we don't need to say thank you to each other. <laughs> I, that's a, that's a, a very different perspective. And I, I appreciate that because it gives a, a different outlook. I always find different people, different situations, depending on tours, depending on experiences, they have a very different view of, of what that is. And so I was curious to know uh, what a frogman would think of that. So I appreciate you touching on that. I know I made you think about feelings and how dare I do such things because people hate those. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but on this show, I like to fuck with people big time. I mean, not as much as you. I mean, I don't, I, I want to get into your podcast because, um, <laughs> not sure. <laughs> so afraid. Like when you and I first got a, started chatting, you were like, yeah, I might have you on my show. I'm going to put you in a situation. And I was like, oh my God, that is like my living nightmare as a civilian being unarmed trying to figure out my way out of a hypothetical situation. It makes me sweat thinking about it. Like I get sweaty. I'm not going to lie to you. Tell me how that podcast came about for you. Uh, Well, actually, I think uh, there was a, there's a season one of can you survive this podcast? And frankly, I hadn't heard of it. Um, And another former seal was hosting it and he did a really good job. And so (laughs) It got picked up by iHeartRadio and for the second season when I came into the fold. Um, and so I had talked to the producers and uh, the folks that had been involved from the beginning and they were like, hey, you'd be a perfect fit. We'd love you to take over and um, take season two or take it for the long haul. And I was like, mm-hmm. all right, you know, let's knock out a couple of interviews and see if I like it. Um, and so now I've done, I think, a half a dozen so far. We launched episode one today with Mike Ritland. Um, and, you know, I've kind of, now that I've done it a couple of times, I'm like, yeah, this is actually kind of fun. You know, right? I had no idea. Um, I got a taste of it when I was building combat edition, you know, when I was roaming the country and interviewing guys, trying to learn their skills and put it mm-hmm. into a book. Um, and I kind of was like, wow, I actually like promoting others more than I like promoting myself. So it seemed um, I figured, well, what, yeah, let's give it a shot and see what happens. So yeah, now I've six, six episodes in first episode that's live and you know, we'll, we'll I guess we'll see. <laughs> Off to the races with it. Yeah. 
Well, I'm sure I'm sure it's going to do well. I know just based on the, the platform itself and how you came at it or how you're coming at it now and the angle that you are, it is one of those podcasts that has a different type of structure that I've never heard before. And I've, I've never encountered something along those lines. And I think that's why it's so perfect for you because you, you are a New York Times bestseller though. You have some serious heavy hitting books out there that when I, when I introduced you and I said that everybody should have copies of your books, it's nothing to do with, you know, you have the memoir, you know, the right kind of crazy, and that's more your line of um, succession and how you got to where you are. But I think what I find most fascinating about you, instead of just telling your story and leaving it at that and letting that be the message that you put out there, you're utilizing your skills in a civilian population that so desperately needs to harden the fuck up. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it my I felt like my my mission getting out has been how do you get people to be more self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-rescue orientated, you know? And that's mm -hmm. uh and how do you do it in a way that it balances between, you know, maintaining the respect of your peers from your old job as you now move in and re-identify yourself in a new world. Um, and that's, that's somewhat of a balancing act, you know, so, um, but it's been fun and I've had, you know, great success stories here and there of people who've actually used the skills to get themselves out of trouble. And, uh, you know, and that's ultimately like the payoff, right? It's like having a journalist say, hey, you know, I almost had this express kidnapping. I was able to identify what was going on around me because I read oh, your wow. book, you know? Um, and so that's, that was pretty cool to hear that about a journalist in Columbia kind of get herself out of trouble, uh, based on, you know, the skills I'm putting out there. So yeah, it's good. Right. Okay. It's, that's fine. It's whatever. I mean, <laughs> come on, you got to give yourself a little more credit. I know you guys, and I say I group you into you guys, cause you Navy SEALs, the ones I've interacted with, they're all very similar in that sense. You don't like to, uh, there's not a lot of self-praise and so you can just shut the fuck up for a second because i'm telling you right now the fact that you just brushed that off that a woman a journalist saved herself in columbia based on your book you you and i both know and some of the listeners who listen to our show know that what would have actually happened to her if she did get taken and so that's great that you think it's not a big deal and i love your how humble you are because it is it's, it's incredibly refreshing but uh, you need to you need to give yourself a lot more credit uh, for that, and I think you and I both uh, can agree yeah. on that. Okay, That's impressive. Well, good job, Clint. Good job. Okay, there we go. Move good on. job, Clint. Now move on. I'll give you something <laughs> else. So that's um, I think there's a lot of value in that uh, because the way that you structured your books is interesting to me. You had a comic book perspective. Um, yep. What did you say to a publisher when you're like, I want to create a safety book? Uh, for humans based on a comic book. I want to know how that went. Um, you know, it was, it wasn't solely my idea. You know, initially when I got out of the Navy, I looked at guys who wrote books the way most guys that are on active duty look at it. They go, that guy's a fucking traitor, sellout, fuck. Yeah. Um, and I was one of those guys. And then you get out and I got presented all these options. And one of the options was a buddy of mine who, um, an older guy, well-established, former chairman of McDonald's kind of guy is like, hey, let's do a book together. And he had already published like 40 plus books and very, oh, wow. uh, very successful dude. 
And I was like, I don't know, man, what are you, what, what are your ideas? He's like, well, we can keep it fun. And, you know, once again, going back to that balancing of act of maintaining respect to your peers and your community, but still writing a book in a way that doesn't piss everybody off. Right. And so that manifested into a hundred deadly skills. And we figured you know, illustrated, having fun with it. It's better than photographs in a book of mm-hmm. how, you know, we knew we wanted it to be a how to, uh, but more in the kind of like hacks and tricks of, you know, keeping yourself safe. And so, you know, through a lot of discussion and back and forth, uh, we came up with the idea, we presented it to the publisher and uh, he already had an agent and he already had the path. He made it easy for me, really. Right. Uh, and then once we signed the contract to do the book, he had a back injury and he had to have the surgery and his recovery didn't go as well as he thought. He calls me and he's like, you know, this thing is taking longer than I thought. You're on your own. And I was like, what? He's like, you're on your own. Go write the book. Finish it. It's all yours. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, you know, oh, and then no. uh, so that for me was like, OK, you know, you know, book writing, uh, project management 101. That was my first big project getting out of the Navy. And, you know, you can figure it out. Right. Like most guys, you just kind of go, all right, I got this. I can do it. And then you uh, just get to work. It's an interesting book, though, because it's not it's not like you could have just sat there and written the pages. You had to come up with the illustration side of it on its own. And that that I want to know, can you explain how that worked out for you? Because the way that you illustrated your books is very reminiscent of that World War Two vibe. Um, Did you have to find somebody specific for that? Because I, I just that just seems like a harder path than writing a normal book, in my opinion. Yeah. It, um, so. Literally, we go and find a bunch of illustrator styles that we literally Google, right? You Google mm-hmm. illustrations, people, you start to kind of dig through the internet and you find a guy that has a certain style and then you backtrack from there, try and get his contact information, which was Ted and got on the phone with him and said, Hey, you know, we want to do this project. And he was like, okay, you know, and it turns out, man, he's got a great background. Um, he was he was a storyboarder for The Walking Dead and oh, wow. um, Breaking Bad. So he did a lot of like storyboarding for these different, you know, successful um, TV series. And mm-hmm. uh, but he has that retro kind of old school way of doing stuff. And so, yeah, immediately we're like, you're in. And then uh, so I would I would come up with the skills list. I had we had probably 150 of them narrowed it down to the best 100 and then just I would actually do the skills and take pictures of myself doing the skills send him the imagery and then he would take those five or six steps to do a skill and then turn it into a retro illustration and uh, we got a system going that obviously worked for a couple of books and then uh, and then the latest book I I switched to um, a really well-known um, DC Marvel illustrator, uh, because I, because combat edition is all like man versus man or, you know, person versus person conflict. And I wanted that more of that hero villain style. Um, Mm -hmm. and I went and grabbed a guy who, you know, did, I mean, Tom Mandrake, I mean, he's done Superman versus Batman. He's the guy who created Swamp Thing, and uh black mask and i mean just a lot of he's he's the creator of all kinds of villains and 
um, is very well known in the illustrator world. So it was awesome to work with him on book three. I love how you actually talk about the people that helped you get to the point that you got to. I think that's important to acknowledge because often it's like, oh, I got a book. I did this. I did that. And it's like, <laughs> well, let's back that up for a second because there's there's steps you got to take and people in place that you got to be able to find and meet and do. And so when you say, you know, I met this guy, how is it that you got in contact with this guy, this super gnarly guy that made the pathway clear for you? Uh, you know, when I was at the NSA, um, now let's just drop that. Like it's a normal conversation for everyday direct, people. Yeah. One of the directors <laughs> knew, knew this guy, right. Knew and he's guy. like, Clint, Clint, you need to meet, you know, you need to meet Keith. And I'm like, Keith, who? And he's like, well, Keith's like, he's, we've uh, been tapping his phones for six years. You know, everything about <laughs> Keith. Great. He goes to the grocery store on Tuesdays. He uses a cell phone at 4 PM for this. That Keith, you know, the guy, that guy. Right. There you go. Yeah. That's the NSA in a nutshell. Um, <laughs> But yeah, he, uh, they introduce us and, you know, he's an entrepreneur and I'm like, what do you mean entrepreneur? Well, he owned more McDonald's than any other human on the planet. I'm like, you're like, that's all, that's, that's not an entrepreneur. That's a fucking machine. Right. And so, and he worked his way up from, you know, owning one McDonald's to being chairman of the board, you know, insane. Yeah. Super cool guy. But here's the other flip side. He's got connections into Hollywood. He's produced mm -hmm. all these shows. And then he's also uh, like the lead advisor on espionage to the CIA and NSA. Because again, normal thing to have a conversation about. Yeah. That's the guy that runs McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that feels yeah, he, like a Bond villain situation if I've ever heard one. Right. Jesus well, Christ. you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because also his house has been in Forbes several times as like the 007 lair, right? This cool house that he's got that's full of spy stuff. And anyway, great guy. He walked, yeah. me, he walked me, he held my hand and walked me down this path that, you know, I'm always forever grateful for. Um, great dude. And uh, that, yeah, I met him, met him at the NSA because he, was advising we were, we were he was advising the nsa again my <laughs> listeners and the, the the longer i get into this the more conversations i have i go back i don't know if you've ever watched anything that you do but i've been informed that i need to watch my face on things because i do things with my body and I act like I should know, like this should be a normal conversation. So when someone's like, yeah, this time the director of the NSA introduced me to the Bond villain that lives and runs all of McDonald's to what the fuck? My brain can't wrap around the people I'm talking to. You're so goddamn cool, Clint. Stop it. I want to be as cool as you guys one day. You know what? I swear if in my like past life, I had to be like six foot tall just jacked and just able to do as many push-ups as Ray Cash can, but I can't right now. So I'm just going to live vicariously through every single one of you. Um, I have a great story about Ray Cash if you want to know it. Oh, tell yeah. us everything. It's a good one. The tell first me. time. So when you show up to Bud's, I, he was in class 200. I'm in class 203. So okay. he's the senior class and I'm the, I haven't even classed up yet. So I'm not even, I'm not even ranked. Okay. And uh, we uh, and so they grab usually if you show up to Bud's early and check in, they'll say, OK, I need 10 guys to go out to San Clemente Island and support the senior class out there. And so mm -hmm. you go out there and you do a bunch of bougie work. Right. And you're, yep. you're working for whoever's running the island. 
and they're making you do all kinds of odds and end jobs in support of the senior class that's out there. And so here I am, the new guy, Ray is in class 200. Those guys, you know, when you're, when your class, the class is ahead of you, you kind of look at like, Ooh, I want to get there one day. Right. Right. And um, so he pulls me in to his, there's a, the birthing out there where, you know, where you live is you're broken up into squads and it's rooms full of bunk beds based on a squad full of guys is in room a and another squad is in room B and whatever. So he pulls me into his room and he's like, I want you to watch this. And the rest of his guys are kind of just sitting there like they're used to raise tricks. <laughs> right. So one guy's in the bunk reading a book another guy's listening to music, you know, they're not really, but so he's run out of audience obviously. And so he pulls me in and I'm like, what, I don't even know what's going on. What are you going to do? He takes two chairs, right? And he puts them, you know, he's got one on his right side, one on his left side. In the backs of the chairs, he, he kind of grips them as if he's going to start doing dips, okay? Yeah. So he extends himself all the way up, locks his elbows out, his feet are off the ground, uh, and he's butt naked, okay? <laughs> Keep in mind, he's butt naked. And he starts <laughs> to flex and shake his body to the point where he gets a boner right and so he's like he's like you know and i and i have no idea like what what what, what and he's just like why watch what's that what would you be doing? <laughs> so that's how i met ray cash care <laughs> So what you're saying is Ray Cashcare has a magical power to give himself an erection by violently shaking his body while holding his body weight off of the chairs. And he just outright does this to just strangers. Just uh, just for his own entertainment, because he's, uh, you know, it was shock and awe, but it's a, it's a, it's a great story. I always try to bring it up anytime just to, oh. it won't embarrass him. You know, it's just one of those oh. moments that I think he, he, uh, I know that the first time that we'd reconnect, I was like, do you remember the first time we met? And he's like, uh, was it at Bud's? I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's that time when you vibrated. Your, yeah. He vibrate, he, he vibrated himself into an erection and that was his trick. You know, respond like I feel like I should be better prepared for these answers and stories because I <laughs> am feeling incredibly blown away by the fact that I had Ray on last week and I'm going to call him immediately after this conversation and I plan on blowing him out about his weird erection stories I that doesn't shock me and here's why so recently I was introduced to a group of people uh through treat, different treatments and they happened to be and say people like you. So people who have normal conversations about the CIA and, and, and ops and just, you know, I served, I, I deployed, I did all the things, but it's a completely different type of group of people. Um, and you guys are all super fucking gay. Why are you all so fucking gay? <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about too. That's why you're smiling at the point where yeah. you are. Yeah. What? It's, is that like a culture that's bred in? Like there's no women. We're all going to touch each other's penises for fun. Well, we don't go that far. But I do have a great story about that too. The, uh, but no, we, it, I say it all the time. 
there's guys in the community that grew up in trailer parks and Harvard mm -hmm. graduates that had a silver spoon shoved up their ass. And when you go through buds, you end up in a platoon, you all end up exactly the same somehow in some sick, twisted way. And uh, it is our common thread. It's super cool. And it's, uh, you know, that when you meet a teen guy, you know what you can get away with in a conversation immediately, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me the story. This one's good because it's, it really commemorates uh, a guy that was a mentor who's since passed away awesome dude great story was first time i met master chief mike martin he is this uh little guy from new jersey and he talks like joe pesci and oh. he can tell stories and he was he was one of very few vietnam frogmen that was still in the teams when i showed up to seal team three like early 90s i'm checking in and there was wow. like this legend mike martin who who had done Vietnam, then got out and then went to the East Coast, worked in a steel mill and then became a Hell's Angel. And then while he was in the Hell's Angels, he decided, you know, I'm going back in the Navy. And he's one of the very few guys that were allowed to leave the Hell's Angels and come back in to the Navy and went back. And then, then that's when I met him at SEAL Team 3, right? And so I'm in the showers, right? It's PT is done. I'm taking a shower. I'm leaning back, washing my hair. I love and when I come forward and open my eyes, here's this, this naked tattooed. He's tattooed from his neck to his toes. Okay. Yes. And he is standing there and his Prince Henry is touching my thigh. Okay. Right. He has the head of his, he has the head of his dick pierced and the ring is touching me. And I kind of look at him. And he's like, hey, what's up, new guy? And I look down and I can see his dick touching my leg. I'm like, what the fuck? And then he just turns around and walks away. <laughs> and I was just like, what? Welcome to the teams, man. Welcome oh. to the SEAL teams. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Oh, that's, <laughs> but, that's fantastic. You know, I, he is an he was such an awesome dude, the best storyteller ever, and he got away with fucking murder like on a regular basis. That guy, nobody messed with him. Admirals, nobody messed with him. Um, we were doing an exercise in Egypt, and uh, it was outside, like eating, and it was you had contracted food vendors, and so you know that were were basically on base and and provided by the government, right? And so mm -hmm. there would be like a lunch day deal where it was hot dogs and hamburgers, right? And this guy takes his, he was very proud of his penis. So he would take his- Sounds like took, it. Yeah, he, he, took his, he took his cock, he pulls it out, puts it in a hot dog bun, puts it on a plate, <laughs> and, and then walks over to the table where the captain is sitting and he's like, hey, sir, you want a hot, another hot dog? And, and anyway, because he's standing, the, the captain is sitting down and he's standing waist high, right? Right. Like pulls up the plate in his face and he's he's holding the plate down, obviously, at his, his pelvic, pelvis area. And he's just putting this hot dog in the captain's face. <laughs> oh, my God. And, it, and then, of course, the captain noticed there's an earring in the hot dog. Like, what the fuck is that? And then he realized, like, oh, my God. <laughs> Did so he grab it? it? Uh, but this guy <laughs> could do whatever. 
it sounds well it's number one it sounds like nobody's gonna fuck with him because who gets out after serving in vietnam becomes a hell's angel and is like you know what let's give this a go again fuck it like does that mean hold on so if he was a frogman in vietnam does that mean that then once he's out he has to go through the same process again no he he got out he had basically broken tour but so yeah he got out got back from vietnam i think got out in the in the 70s and then came back in in the 80s right to finish out his time when i met him he was a he was a chief or senior chief um and he was running training at seal team three for us and uh great dude and then I, I had to, I had the opportunity to do a, uh, a ride. You know, we drove our Harleys from uh, up to DC for rolling thunder and all that nice. uh, before COVID um, the year before COVID kicked in, it was the last big Memorial day up in uh, DC. Um, and we rode up there together. And then I came back down to Dallas. He went to Ohio to visit his sister shows up, sits in a, sits in the recliner and dies. And that was, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he'd done all that writing and, uh, and then got there and was like, Hey, I'm just going to take a break, put his feet up and took the ultimate break. Yeah. So great guy though. Fuck man. That guy was just, uh, too much fun. Well, there's certain people and you, this illustrates that perfectly. There's certain people in the military that there's, they're so damn good at what they do. And they are so proficient that you can't say anything to these guys because they're so dialed, they're so squared away that you know they're, they're they're so respected on a level. And and you have to you have to give it to them. You got to let them. There's certain people that can get away with that behavior. And I think I think that's such a beautiful thing that you guys just <laughs> took it on the chin, literally, depending on the situation, <laughs> on the chin. You know that yeah. that. But I'm so glad that you had that experience with him because there's so much value in um, in, le- in leadership and there's so much value if you have the proper leadership. And on time and time again, I hear on a regular basis that, you know, based on and I had this with my staff and they admit it to me 10 years later. And so I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to hear that. But you hear about, you know, having these special ops guys and all these things and you hear about some things going wrong. And what people kind of forget is it's not always the people that are doing the off that it goes because it goes wrong. It's often leadership based. And so how long did you serve for? How many deployments? And what was your leadership level when you were in? Any those things you can you can say, whatever you can say. Let's. Yeah, no, that's easy. I mean, I I did my 20 years um, deployments kind of got count. The first half is your typical multiple six month plus deployments, right? The standard mm-hmm. Navy deployment. Um, and then when 9-11 and uh, Iraq and all that began, then the deployment cycles, uh, obviously it ramped up even more so. So you had the pre 9-11 deployments where I was attached to an ARG, and, which is an amphibious readiness group, and you're on a ship and you're kind of sitting in, around the world just waiting for something to happen that you can go respond to and be a quick reaction, reaction force, if you will. Um, so that's where I ended up like on the USS Cole or, you know, we were boarding ships in the Persian Gulf and forcing the embargo against Saddam and, you know, so multiple deployments doing the pre 9-11 thing and then you had multiple deployments 
uh, post 9-11. Uh, and then where, you, where I really lost track is once I moved into more of the covert clandestine world, um, you know, there was times I would deploy and because I was either by myself or with one other guy, I would be gone for, let's say, a month and then come home and then go for right. two months and come home and then be gone mm -hmm. for, you know, three months. Um, so really, it, for me, it was it, the numbers. I've never really sat down because those short ones where you're still going over and operating, they count, but you're just not there as long like, right. like the old days. So, I mean, you're talking, I mean, most of us, I would say, generally speaking, you know, anywhere between 60 to 75 percent of your career you're gone easily right mm -hmm. you're not home um no doubt about it and then uh leadership wise you know i work i did i was uh you know worked my way up as uh you know leading a platoon as an lpo or a you know a leading petty officer uh then later became a team leader of smaller uh, more covert entities. I was an ATL, then I was a, a TL. Um, and then, you know, then there was different program management jobs I did where now you're, you're, you're managing, I was managing like 40 dudes and a whole bunch of money. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, got, had the opportunity to kind of cover all the full spectrum of leadership. All and bases. Yeah. When you're looking at that, looking back, <clears throat> do you, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at here, this is a tricky one because I don't know how to word it quite properly, but if you were to look back at the leadership that you had in that time frame, other than just the individual we spoke of, did you find that your leadership was adequate for the types of operations that you were doing? Uh, it's ups and, it has its ups and downs. You know, uh, when the wars kicked off, you had a bunch of officers come out from behind cubicles and all of a sudden try to run a war and they didn't know what they were doing. So it really wasn't their fault. Um, because they, it was the first time since really Vietnam to uh, all of a sudden now we're back into combat operations again. And so the experience was lacking, which then in return made the leadership a little off, right? right. And so there was moments where that was obviously very frustrating. And, uh, but as we got more and more experience and the junior officers who had been in combat moved up into those primary leadership positions, then all of a sudden things got squared away real quick, you know, mm -hmm. and people, everyone knew exactly what to do, how to do it, when to do it, how to sell it. You know, that was the big thing is most people think you just get handed orders and you go do an op and no, the reality is, is you're giving sales pitches on, okay, to leadership. And then the leadership go, all right, this is how the army guys would do it. This is how the Navy guys would do it. This is how the Marines would do it. I think we'll go with the Navy guys and they would hand us that, that gig. Right. Mm -hmm. And you go do it. So you start learning, like, it's not just about performance in the field. It's important. But what's even more important is having squared away leadership that can go sell you and say that we are capable, we can do this. And this is how we would do it. And then when those operations, when you're going up against your competitors, like the Army and the Marines and the Air Force, you know, and so um, over time, yeah, by the time I the time I got out, man, you had like some of the greatest officers, you know, you could ever work for. That's fantastic. <clears throat> I love that. I love hearing that, that it got turned around in a way that it should, especially if you're dealing with active deployments on a regular basis. That's a, that's a life and death situation. And when you have people that aren't trained properly, you learn very, very quickly where things fall apart. 
Um, for you now with what you've kind of got going on and how your life has developed and <clears throat> what your focuses are now, you went from the Navy SEALs and then you worked NSA or did you work agency as well? Well, NSA, I was at the NSA as an active duty Navy SEAL. So they only okay. had one billet there and I went and filled it. It was something that we placed there on purpose to, to increase interagency communication and relationship mm -hmm. stuff, you know. Um, it led to a bunch of other kind of fun stuff, but I was, uh, I was there kind of in the middle. It was the split from the, what we call the tactical world at, you know, the SEAL team three type world. Then you go, I went to the NSA for a little bit, and then I went to a national level, more strategic level command, um, you know, for the remaining part of my career. Okay. So what, when did you finally retire? What year was that? Uh, 2015. Yep. So, it's still fairly recently. Kind of, yeah. I'm getting, you know, getting out here in this retired world. Now it's what, five, six years now. So <laughs> time flies. I know. It's going by so damn quick. I mean, my God, my my deployment was in 09 and I feel like I'm 96 years old all of a sudden. It's like, when did you deploy? I'm like, I'm not even going to say the time because you were barely, you weren't even alive. Like, don't, like, don't <laughs> talk to me. You weren't alive. Like you were in diapers. Like, don't have that conversation with me. I'm starting to feel like an old man. Um, you know, minus like the weird penis thing that you guys have that you seem to like to throw <laughs> around on a regular basis. <clears throat> it's interesting, uh, though, seeing the transition. It's almost like the more I talk to you guys, it's like the prerequisite to being in the agency and or to having a successful company outside. It almost seems like it's taking a lot more than just regular veterans. It's almost having to have a special operator in some level in your business or running your business or advocating or doing work with your business because that leadership style, like you said, it transitions so, so, so well into civilian population if you do it properly. Yeah. Uh, well, I would, I mean, I can only speak for the SEAL community where we, one, we are run by, we, the enlisted run our community, right? The master chiefs on down and the experienced operators uh, are the ones that drive the community, run the community, lead the community. With that, we are also given the privilege to be very entrepreneurial and be very creative with training, operations, you name it, right? From mm -hmm. cradle to grave, we are kind of given a really, really long leash. Sometimes we get in trouble, but a lot of times it pays off having that freedom so that we can always stay light years ahead of the enemy. And I think that's the most important quality that you gain uh, or trait so then when it's time to leave the military, you've already, you know, done a dozen startups, if you will, while you were a SEAL, right? That startup could have been your, you know, as a new guy, it could be me, you know, being a, a medic. It was my medical department. And when you get into a platoon, they're like, hey, you're in charge of the medical department in our platoon. Get it fixed. Get it, get it up and running. And sometimes yeah. you start nothing. Sometimes you're starting with the leftovers of a previous guy um, and it's on you to get it all squared away and nobody's going to help you. You got to do it on your own. And then, then it just elevates from there through your entire career to where by the time I was done, I was, you know, standing up these programs of record for SOCOM with, you know, you know, tens of millions of dollars supporting it and making it happen. And so all of that freedom um, then translates very well to when you get out to starting your own business and, uh, and not stopping until it's 
making money and it's in the black and it's successful. Like you're not going to stop because you know, if I just keep going, it's going to be great. Right. So yeah, I think that's, that's the takeaway. Yeah. Cause it's definitely different when you talk to, you see the levels of veteran and you see the levels of entrepreneurship and not to say that one is better than the other, but they're just very different. And I think that comes from, you know, if you just walk in at a high school into a regular armed forces, and then you leave the military, you're not often left with a lot to kind of work with there. But if you become an elite, you learn very quickly based on permissions and, 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 and rights granted and things It gives you that freedom to learn. Um, I guess that's why I wanted to bring that up is because I wanted to know, um, when you started creating these books, obviously you wanted to do it so that you could utilize the skills and tools that you had learned inside the military. But it, was there any sort of um, word? Was there any sort of reasoning behind it based on maybe the state of the world and maybe a threat level factor where you're like, this could this really needs to be utilized by what's going on because of what's going on in the world. This really needs to be out there. Was there any urgency on that because of anything going on that? maybe we don't know about? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, obviously, intelligence drives operations, and you'd get intel on, uh, uh, you know, bad guys or bad training camps. I mean, bad boats, bad vehicles, you name Mm. it, whatever the target is, is the target. And, um, And then you would have to reverse engineer what's the best way to dominate that target. And sometimes that led to developing technology or a new training, you know, SOP or uh, you name it. So yes, I mean, the the short answer is, yeah, I mean, there was a lot Mm -hmm. of times where you're developing um, either a new widget or a new tactic, knowing that that's the way you're going to win against that target, Um, no matter whatever, whatever it was, or, you know, the target certainly dictates for sure. Yeah, I just wonder because I mean, there's a lot of those books, and a lot of them are very much based on you know self defense and and those types of things. So I was wondering about if there's motive just based on civilian population and threats that the regular people in the world don't get to find out about. Just tried and true methods, I guess, is what we'll go with. We can yeah, leave that like yeah. That. I mean, well, I mean, the translation to civilian, like a hundred deadly skills. Um, the first book was, was originally part of it was a list of skills. I thought every operative should have. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, then I watered it down on purpose, obviously, so that you're not giving away, uh, any kind of classified or sensitive material. Um, and then you, you know, that's what the Pentagon's for, right? Anytime you write a book, you got to hand it off to them and then they go through and redact and change, anything they feel like is a little too much for the civilian sector to know at any given point. Um, but if you, if you, but if I, you know, if you really had to break it down, a hundred deadly skills is a great translation of kind of <laughs> skills from the military that anybody can use. So there you go. I, I love how you're able to sell that in such a palatable way for regular civilian population. I'm sorry. That to <laughs> me, that's a serious skill that I struggle with on a, big level. I'm, that's impressive. Well done, sir. I appreciate the way you do that. So tell me what else you got going on in the world that everybody needs to know about. Uh, I mean, my entire ecosystem is at clintemerson.com, but really my lane is crisis management. And so uh, part of that lane is for corporate through a company called Escape the Wolf, which is giving employees and workforces the policy and workforce education they deserve 
and we make it easy for corporations. We make it very turnkey, plug and play to get that education and policy and tools out there. And then crisis management for the civilian sector is the book series, you know, 100 Deli Skills. And so that's a very informative yet entertaining way to do it with the illustrations and the narratives. And now with Combat Edition, I added an extra element where if you take your smartphone and put it on camera mode and hold it over the illustration, it takes you to a video that teaches you that entire skill by the experts in that book. And so, uh, but for all that information, it's all at clinemerson.com. And then the platforms I use the most are Instagram and YouTube. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Yeah. I was going to say your YouTube is really awesome. I love, uh, how you've done the videos they're digestible smaller very what do we call that um good for the lack of attention span that the world has yeah. right now and so i personally have watched a few of them with my four-year-old and he loves them yeah he, perfect it's like ninja school and he loves it he's in jujitsu now and he just started and mommy was a fighter so I actually roll with him, which is fun for me. And he watches these videos with me, but I think it's the way I would really recommend any of our listeners to go check out Clint's uh, YouTube because it's such a digestible and understandable way for such small implications to be just such a big help if there is that situation that comes through. And I know for him specifically, the way you slow it down, you pause, you stop, you look at it, you, you don't just go, okay. And then you go like this, you go like this, have a great day, everyone. You really stop, you take the time. And I, I just want to acknowledge, cause I think those videos are um, by far one of the better instructional videos I've seen oh, for yeah. like any sort of defense. And you're like, well, yeah, obviously I made it, Kelsey, get your <laughs> shit together. It's embarrassing that you're saying otherwise, like, yeah. Why do I even talk? Why am I even here, Clint? <laughs> you can do this on your own, obviously. I mean, yeah, I don't know why I'm here because you're pretty entertaining all by yourself. <laughs> well, yeah, you know what the fun thing is? People don't want to listen to this on a repeat basis just by itself because I talked to my husband about that. And I was like, yo, you've been married to me. We've been like 12 years. So like, you've heard this. You've heard the crazy for the past 10 years. You've heard all of the things. And yet you're just like, do a podcast because you want other people to experience that. <laughs> is that like group trauma you're trying to put out in the world or is it actually tolerable? He's like, yeah, you're tolerable most days. Yeah, like, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right, marriage. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's marriage, but it's also like new boobs. So he's like on like the winning streak right now. He's all happy with life. So I can't, It's he's just bribing me with happiness. It's fine, I'll take it. Well, it can be entertaining. What can whatever it takes to survive each day of marriage, I'm for. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you've got, I won't talk about your family life, but I know you, um, are you, are you a married man, Clint? No, I'm a divorce guy, you know, and oh. that, that follows suit with. Uh, the starter know, package a, for the special operators. It is. It's, uh, yeah, it's part of the deal, I guess. It's, uh, it's like, what is it? 95, you know, you hear these statistics, 95%. It's you know, yeah. in our community, but I really don't know for sure if that's right or not. I know that military as a whole, if you were married through an entire career, usually the divorces happen after the guy retires because they wake up next to each other every day going, I don't even fucking know you anymore. Right. <laughs> and they get yeah. divorced, you know? So that's what, that's what Ray said too. Yeah. You're separated an entire career. So of course the marriage is going to last because no one's hanging out, you know? So Nobody's putting up with each other's shit. I know Ray said right. that to me. She's fucking awesome. But 
if she divorces me, it's, it's going to be my fault. It's going to be my fault for sure. It's going to be all me. And I was like, oh, yeah. well, then get your shit together and don't let that be an option. <laughs> get it together. But he was talking great things about his wife. And so I'm sorry to hear that. But I mean, I also expect that with you guys. I do. I know that you guys have a takes a special type of person and it takes a very unique type of woman to put up with your shit. And so kudos to the women that still are the rest of you. I mean, just maybe calm the fuck down, Clint. I don't know. <laughs> just calm the fuck down, buddy. Yeah. Or stop running people through your sadistic version of a podcast. Maybe that just have a conversation with a human brother. Just don't. I'm well, so scared. <laughs> there's there's conversations going on so yeah but just go check it out you know that's the key that yes. uh it's a lot of fun almost like how you're running yours it's a very open light-hearted not scared to go in the gutter type uh format which is uh i think most people want to hear that kind of thing they enjoy it they don't want the typical just you know so you uh you grew up in Dallas, Texas, huh? How was that growing up? How how hard was Hell Week? Man, I hear that you get wet and sandy and cold. No, because everybody's already heard that a thousand times, right? Well, that's it. Everybody said every all of us have a similar, we all have a somewhat similar type of story, and eventually that just gets boring. So if you've got nothing else to bring to the table, just you should just you should shut your mouth. So I'm, uh, I'm really thrilled to have had you on. I know you have a hard time out, so I'm going to let you go. But what I do want to know is I want to know, so clintemerson.com, everything is on Instagram and YouTube with Clint Emerson. You can get your hundred deadly skills. You've got all your other four other books. The one book you've got is a puzzle book. I know we didn't talk about it, but it's a human generated puzzle book. So it is not a computer-based bullshit book of just a bunch of Watson level computers it's useful information. It's things to help with TBI. It's to help with PTSD. And I, that's what my show is about is mental health and finding tools and ways to get better in your life and become the best version of yourself. So I just want to throw that out there. What's the name of that specific book? It's a, it's deadly skills. It's, it's easy deadly to find it has the maroon cover. Yep. Ah, the maroon cover because you're color coordinated. I like it. <laughs> See, it all makes sense. Clint, I cannot thank you enough for coming on this episode. Thanks for having me. It's been, been a good time. Good. Well, we will chat with you all later.